Welcome to Vision is More Than 2020, a podcast aimed at talking about your vision, your eyes, and how they play a role in overall visual and systemic function. Dr. Zelnicki and Lakowski, with the help of various guests, will work to help you understand more about your visual system and all the pieces to the vision puzzle. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Vision is More Than 2020. We're going to kick off this episode with our weekly insight, which is the importance of family. Family time is of huge importance to both Dr. Zelnicki and myself. It's a way that we really get our refuel and quality time. I was lucky enough uh, this past weekend to see my parents for the first time in six months, which was such such a treat. And it really just brought back home that importance of family time. Um, and we really just took that time to soak each other in. You know, we really tried to stay off the phone, off the TV, and really just enjoy our time with each other. It was just such a refreshing weekend that I really honestly needed. So I just wanted to remind everyone out there that whatever family time you can get at this time, just soak in those moments that you have and remember to stay off those screens. Yeah, and I think that is really an important thing to note because pre-pandemic, when we would get together with family and friends, we often would find ourselves uh, scrolling through our phones just aimlessly while we were with them. And I think this whole thing has really made us understand how important those personal connections are. So like Dr. Lukowski said, when you are in the presence of your family and your friends, make sure you're getting the most out of it and really connecting with them. On today's episode, we're going to continue our conversation about vision and learning and all these different pieces of the visual system. We are so excited for our guest today. We have Dr. Brenda Montecalvo. She's an optometrist and international motivational speaker on how to use vision to improve all aspects of a person's performance on the job, playing field, and at school. She is the author of Visual Secrets of School Success. She gives retreat seminars and workshops at her farm in Cedarville, Ohio. She specializes in visual learning, strabismus and amblyopia, and brain injury. With her vast knowledge in all areas of vision, she enjoys helping people of all ages improve their learning skills so they have more time for future goals, fun, friends, and family. She helps people see more for better vision so they can be and do more for a better life, which allows them to give more, which creates a better world. So excited to have you with us today. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Why did you become an optometrist, and how did you even get started in the field of vision therapy? Um, thank you so much for the invitation to share uh, information about uh, me today. So I so appreciate uh, being asked to share about 2020 eyesight. And so a little bit about myself. I um, began being interested in optometry at a very young age. My mom actually started practicing optometry in 1945, and she did vision therapy all the way through her 70 years of practice. So anytime she would go to a meeting, she would bring back along any of her um, ideas she learned at meetings and kind of practice on the four of us kids first, and then she put it into her practice. So I was introduced at a very young age. And I, as I got older, I worked actually for her in high school and college and watched to see her change lives in all different types of the areas of vision therapy. And I had seen patients come back into her office and say that, you know, the reason I'm in college is because you helped me with my vision. And I, too, wanted to do the same thing. And, and it's, a, it's a really exciting direction to go. Uh, every day you come in and, and you're making a difference. And, and that was very rewarding for me. 
Yeah, I think that we can definitely relate to that, that when you're doing more than just refracting and giving people contacts and glasses and you're actually getting to change people's lives and do something meaningful every day, it really is rewarding as a career. And I saw on social media that your daughter just joined your practice as well, right? Yes, she did. So she's third generation optometrist, and we're so excited uh, for her to be here. And uh, the ex- uh, she came home real excited yesterday that uh, she, our uh, main vision therapist coordinator, had three patients yesterday sign up for vision therapy that she'd referred into the program, and she just started working in July. So she's uh, got the bug of vision therapy as well. Oh, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about vision and learning. What symptoms do you see in children with learning-based visual problems? What are like the common symptoms that you see that are kind of are a red flag when you're giving them an exam? Sure. Um, So basically, we all know that evidence-based information has showed us that about one in four students that are in the classroom do have some sort of vision problem. I think the mistake that most uh, of the population makes is they assume it's because of 20-20 eyesight issues when, in fact, very few of them have problems with 20-20 eyesight. They have more of the problems in the other visual areas that we assess when they come in. And so some of the symptoms, it's interesting, if you're not a good student, they usually don't complain on initial visit, uh, case history. Um, Sometimes parents will even tell you that the child's getting straight A's when in fact they're, they have an IEP or they have a 504 and they're in special needs class and they're getting straight A's that are modified. So um, <clears throat> when the student is a non-achiever, you know, they'll, if you ask parents, you might see them rubbing their eyes. They may have some stomach aches or headaches, but they don't usually report double vision and blur even though they're having that. Uh, and so the eye strain goes missed, actually, and they get uh, labeled as some other type of problem. Although the child that is trying to achieve, they're going to have more things uh, that are affecting them, like eye strain and headaches. Uh, and at the end of the day, the avoiders and those that have difficulty and uh, trying hard, they all are having a long time doing homework at night, causing a lot of family strife. So I see that as probably the biggest thing, that it affects family life. And uh, that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book, to help kids be more efficient learners so they don't struggle all night long with hours and hours of homework. Let's talk a little bit about your book. You recently published a wonderful book called Visual Secrets for School Success. And it's all about being able to read faster, write better, master math and spelling skills, and really all about how all of those different components really have these huge underlying visual components to them. And by working on those underlying visual pieces, you can really help master those skills in school. So tell us a little bit about your book, what made you write a book, and what made you come up with this idea? Well, thank you for the compliment. And um, what happened was 30 years ago, I started seeing patients in vision therapy and we do a great job getting their skills better, but I noticed that they didn't always get better in school right away. And as I've been working in this area, sometimes you'll hear from the academic setting that we can't really say that their, their school's going academic performance is going to improve. We can improve the visual skills. But I think really what was happening is when you have a child that has so many splinter skills that are in their way, once they get new vision skills, it has a very difficult time converting to good academic learning skills. 
And so I started helping kids 30 years ago use those new visual skills by using the different secrets that we do to convert them to become more automatic learners. And then about 20 years ago, we moved to the farm out in the country, and our kids had to go from a Montessori school to a public school. And then I, too, was faced with the trap of hours and hours of homework. I could see it was stressful in our family. It took all the time we had to try to keep up with all the demands of the classroom. So I said, well, I'm not, why am I not using these ideas for my own kids? <laughs> so I actually taught my own kids how to do these things. And I actually even added to my repertoire of the visual secrets. And I taught them how to read faster. Uh, and how to write more efficiently and, and better, and how to master math and spelling in a very short period of time. And so in a very sh about three or four weeks, all of a sudden we had less homework. And by the time my kids were uh, about a year out, they could get most of their work done in school. Very rarely did they bring homework home, even through high school, because they learned to do things with their visual system more efficiently than their colleagues or their classmates. And so they always done earlier on their in-class assignment, and they'd pull out their homework assignment and do it in between classes. And, and they prided themselves in not having a bunch of books in their backpack. That's so, so interesting. That I, said, I could write a book. Yeah, you should yeah, definitely so write I, said, you I, should, I could write a book about this, right? And so that was 20 years ago. And so I turned 60 last year, and I said, OK, I got to do this before I die. And, so, and then I thought, well, this is the year of 2020, the year of vision. Why don't I publish it in 2020? And so I finally committed to doing the publication. And uh, it, it was a very enjoyable process. And it was a great learning experience. And I loved doing it. Um, and so I'm excited. I actually have about five more books I want to write. I want to write one on baby's vision. My mom had initially published it, self-published it. And I want to rewrite it for And um, and I want to write one on sports and one on brain injury and one on uh, strabismus and amblyopia. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about You have the writing bug. <laughs> I and do. I just have to figure out where I'm going to put the time. <laughs> yes. So for the listeners, the book really breaks down the components of each area of learning and what skills are necessary for success in a very approachable way. Uh, I actually shared this book with my sister because she has four young children and because of the pandemic, she was doing all home based learning. So she was seeing firsthand their struggles in school. Her one son who's six, he's an amazing reader, but a terrible speller. And she was like, Mikey, what do I do with my what, what do I do with him? I, I I'm not a teacher. I don't know how to help him you know he's doing well academically but there's this missing piece to the puzzle so I actually shared the book with her and she thought it was so amazing that you broke it down in such a way for the parent and someone not well versed in vision and learning to understand okay these are the different components of this academic skill and then how can how she can work on it so from a you know as a person just a lay person, she really gravitated toward the, towards the book and was able to implement some of your strategies. And she's seen a difference in her child in just, a sh like you said, just a few short weeks. Her, her son, Anthony, has become a much better speller. So I think for those that are listening, it, you don't have to be an optometrist or a teacher to gain benefit from this book. And I think that was your, your aim. 
Yes, you're absolutely right. And thank you so much for saying that. That does my heart good. I, I really believe that uh, once that person has better vision, it really can make your life better, and then we can make the world better. And so uh, the one thing I always try to emphasize that it is not a supplement uh, to supplement or to replace optometric vision therapy. I very much stress that the skills have to be in place before they can actually be successful at doing the visual secrets. And so it's a bridge program that allows people that have the skills they need to bridge them over to academic success. And even in the book, I show uh, lay people how they can find the right optometrist to do the evaluation so they can be sure they have all the skills they need before they get started. Um, after I wrote the book, I realized that if we don't get kids you know, intervened early and ahead of time, I hear in adults, um, I'm with this group with publication, and I hear people say, um, you know, I'm not good at math, or I've never been a good speller, or, you know, I have to read audiobooks instead of actual reading them. And I hear the symptoms of people being unsuccessful academically all through their life. And it's not something that goes away. They just begin to avoid activities that involve learning. And it's really sad these really successful people really have an inferiority complex almost because they're not good at that. And, and even adults can use these ideas to improve these skills. So they, it takes time if you can't use your vision right. It robs you of time, and that's a horrible trap to get into. And if you use these techniques, you have treasure of more time to do what you actually want to rather than spending hours to do something that should take a short period of time. I think that's a really interesting point that you made, that a lot of people just write off a lot of these skills that really then translate to things that they need later on in life. Just saying simply, oh, I'm not really a reader, or oh, I'm just not good at math, and they just develop these compensations to get by in life in other ways. And I, I think it's because really it's our job to really educate the public that there could be an underlying reason why, and in a lot of cases that can be visual, and people don't realize that or even know that there could be a reason why they avoid things, so they don't really seek out any answers or any treatments. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it just seems like that lifetime of struggle is something optometry can really help so many people with, and it's, it's a well-kept secret, and um, my goal in life now is to share what optometry, we, we optometry do vision therapy, we can really change the world, and we just have to get the message out there. So I'm working with individuals that help us re-message our information so we can reach people throughout the world because this is not – it's a really high percentage of people that are, that are harmed because they don't know what we can do for them. Another thing that I really liked as I was looking through your book is, you know, obviously as an optometrist, I understand all the visual pieces that go into learning in the classroom, but you brought up some really interesting concepts that I think even myself, I didn't really think about um, in terms of how vision plays a role in things, even like time management and organization, the way that you described how the visual system even plays a role in those bigger level concepts, which also play a big role in academics and then also in your professional life, I thought was really interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit about how vision plays a role in things like time management and organization? Yeah, and actually, um, and I, I, I specifically did not use my daughter's name. I have a middle child. She's actually a medical doctor now. But um, I actually interviewed her for the time management chapter um, I myself have a 
clock ticking in my brain all of the time that I know if I'm going to be 10 seconds early or 10 seconds late because when I leave my house, I know exactly where I'm going to end up. And she has no idea of that. And so as I interviewed her, uh, I was fascinated at what she's had to do uh, to deal with that. She has to be there half an hour early in order to be on time or she's half an hour late. And um, so I am still learning about the two populations of people that understand time and those that don't. And a lot of individuals don't realize how much vision is involved in that because it's really a map in our brain that allows us to calculate where we are in space and how long does it take us to get from one space to another space. And all the work we do in vision therapy is the foundation for us judging how we move through space and coordination and all of that. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you have any children that, that no matter how, how hard you work, they can't get to school on time. But, you know, that middle child really taught me a lot that, that people really think differently about time. And I have actually a lot of good friends that are brilliant. My daughter's brilliant, and they're musically gifted. And you would think that would help their timing, but, you know, they – they end up wanting to do an extra thing on their way to pick up the kids from school, and all of a sudden they won't get there on time. But they don't realize that that's going to take time too. It's almost like they just don't have any concept of it. It's a fascinating subject. Yeah, I think there was a, a big topic about how some people just don't have an internal dialogue. That was very popular on social media a few months ago, that some people, you know, I know uh, personally for me, like I'm constantly talking to myself and thinking about things. And I guess some people don't have that same inner dialogue. Um, so it, it's very similar, yeah. right? They, they're they just not conscious. They just don't have that consciously awareness piece of time and timing and how things, one thing affects the other. Right. And so like in vision therapy, all our metronome work is a big advantage to start getting that brain to be aware of that and uh, strategies. So I actually talked with her about strategies, about what would work and what wouldn't work. And I said, well, would this work? And she goes, nope, that doesn't work. Because <laughs> when you personally can have that timing clock, you don't know how to fix it because you don't have personal experience. And so we worked a lot about trying different ideas of what helped her be more successful. Because if you are late, if you are late to a new job, that person that is in charge of your position will always think of you as a late person for the entire time you work for them, even though you're hardly ever late. They're always going to blame you for being late because that person might be an on-time person. And it ends up really hurting that individual because they don't realize how significant it affects their ability to be looked upon as more capable to do an activity or a task. So it's a right. critical piece. Right, absolutely. Now, I have to be honest, my favorite part of your book was actually towards the end when you talk about the things about how important positive thinking is and the tone of either the parent, the teacher, or the coach, and how those things play a role in the child's success. Can you talk a little bit about those things? Yeah, thanks. I love that question. I appreciate you asking it. So on the very front, uh, my book is endorsed by the person that was actually the inspirator for this positive concept, and that is Adele Faber. And she's written three books uh, that are uh, Liberated Parents, 
how to talk so kids will listen, how to listen so kids will talk, and um, one other one. But uh, in her books, she teaches you how to empower your children to make good decisions. And in our entire vision therapy program, our philosophy is if we don't get the answer we want, we haven't asked the right question. And so that entire thing about trying to create an environment for self-discovery, which actually builds neuroplasticity and dendrogenesis, is that person, I always tell the parents, I say, we can't go with them to school, so we need to let them make some decisions, and they need to, to fail sometimes, and they need to be successful, and they need to face the consequences. And so that's the, in my kids, when we started doing it, um, Every once in a while, one of them would say, Mom, you have two choices. You can do this, you can do that. Because that was a biggie. You know, you get to make decisions. And when a person starts complaining about something that goes on in their life or in their classroom, you know, the books tell you and teach you how to listen, repeat what you've heard, but not solve their problem for them. Right. I, and you hit on something that you sometimes have to let kids fail. Very early in the book, you talk about how as toddlers, we think it's we, we praise them for their effort, even if they don't get it right. Your example in the book was when a child is learning how to play baseball and they run to the, the wrong base or they run the, run the wrong way. But then they get to school and all of a sudden we accept we, we expect perfection. And that's not really fair to the child. And we have to be aware as parents and teachers and eye doctors and just overall professionals and people in children's lives that kids aren't perfect and we have to figure out what works for them and let them fail in order for them to succeed. So I really liked that you brought that up and it, it, it kind of resonated with me because it's so true that we praise the effort, but when it comes to academics, we want perfection for our kids and it's not doable all of the time, right off the bat. Not every kid is just going to know how to learn easily. And that's actually even even my my oldest, uh, when he was four, started learning. He actually was a little gifted young. He used to, he could, uh, he knew all his letters, but he's one. He could do 250 plus two. So he had lots of good skills. When he started to learn to spell, I started correcting him all the time. You know, no, it's spelled this way. And about a week, a smart kid's going to learn, well, I'm not going to keep failing. I'm going to quit trying. And he quit trying completely and didn't want anything to do with it until I, tur I turned it around and started saying, well, you got three of the four letters right. What do you think is mm. missing? So you, what you try to do is rephrase your statement so that the, they're curious. And actually, if you look at the studies and evidence based on gender genesis and neurogenesis, is you have to be a little bit curious and try to do something new in order to create new brain cells and connect cells to other cells. And so in vision therapy, we do that all the time. And so that's part of learning. So if you always answer or I show them what's wrong, then they always depend on it. So I always tell parents that have kids that are doing poorly, like in a math assignment, I'll say, I want you to go through the assignment. And I want you to tell them how many they got right, but don't tell them which ones they were. <laughs> and they have to figure out which ones are right and wrong. So that self-discovery is huge with trying to figure it out. Now, it's going to take more time. But uh, sure, like we had a reward system that if they could give me a paper that was 100%, they would get to pick from the treasure chest And you know, because I knew they had the ability to do it. So trying to create positives in rather instead of the negatives. I think, and actually there's studies on endorphins and all that sort of thing that 
helps them have the right internal environment to be successful learners. I think that's a huge piece. You know, I think that we probably all have kids that we see in our practice that come in and they maybe aren't getting that positive reinforcement, only that negative piece. And you can see it written all over their face. Even sometimes just before coming to the exam, they're so concerned and worried about getting things wrong um, that then we have to really just tell them there are no wrong answers here during this exam or in our vision therapy sessions. But you can definitely tell those kids that are missing that positive reinforcement piece. So and that's really important to explain to our listeners how important that can be to teachers in the classroom and also to parents working with their kids, especially with so many children learning from home right now in the current situation that we're in. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And yeah. uh, I often actually have to turn and I, I tell mom and dad, I sh- don't answer for them. I just want to know what the, I said, it's okay, whatever the answer. The, I don't, it doesn't matter what the answer is. I just want to see how they come about it. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot, you know, and I love to observe and figure out or ask questions. A lot of us forget to ask the child, well, how did you come up with that answer? And then when you, and it was the incorrect answer, but when you listen to their strategy, it was brilliant how they come up with the answer. And you miss that if you always mark it wrong. Right. I'm so excited to share this book with our listeners, but can you give us your three favorite visual secrets? Okay, so I was thinking about that, and um, you actually referred to one of them. It was the Monte Calvo spelling technique that you spoke about earlier, and Mm -hmm. that is um, identifying the syllables and labeling each letter with a number. So, like, for example, if you spell reptile, how many syllables? There's two syllables. The first one, how many letters? There's three letters. So the first position letter is the R. Second position is the E, third is the P, and same with tile, you label, and there's seven letters total. Then I'll ask, what's the sixth letter, what's the first letter, what's the fourth letter, and now I want you to spell reptile forward, and now try to spell it backwards as quickly and accurately as you can. And they're doing that all visually, and typically if you learn your spelling words like that, then you only have to write them one time because you have to make sure they transfer into the, the handwriting. Because sometimes you can get them auditory and visual, but you've got to have the kinesthetic reinforcement. And then you write them one time, and typically you've got them all right, and then you do them one more time before the test, and then you're good to go. So that's my first one. Second one was the, Mon- the Monte Calvo math technique, and that one was uh, everybody hates flashcards. And so I created a system where we can create multiples. And I actually label my ten fingers, and I wiggle each finger and uh, it's a multiple of one through 10. So if I wiggle my pinky, it's one times two. If I wiggle my thumb, it's five times two. So whatever finger I'm wiggling, they have to give me the answer of the multiple. So okay. it's a I like really that. fast way to do a multiplication uh, activity. And the nice thing, is both of those techniques convert to the van driving that all our parents are driving everywhere with all their kids all the time, except for COVID. That stopped all that, but they're always <laughs> spending all that time in the van. So both these techniques, once you've kind of built the foundation, you can use in the van. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to do sixes. So I'm going to call out a number, and you tell me what's the multiple of six. So if I say four, they have to immediately answer 24. So you can do that in the van. The same thing with spelling. Okay, we're gonna, we used to stick, you know, our spelling words to the um, steering wheel. And on the way to church, we'd do all the spelling words forward and backwards for the three kids. And then on the way back, we'd repeat them and now be done. 
So that, you know, it's kind of like doubling up on your time. And, and time to me is such a key piece. We want to save as much time for good stuff rather than rote activities. And so those are two really fun ones. And they work really well. And the automaticity of spelling, once you learn how to do that, kids that are about third grade and lower will take about a year, but then every time they look at a set of 12 words to spell, they will be able to look at them and instantly know how to spell them without work. And then when you get into junior high, anybody over third grade usually takes about two or three weeks to learn how to do it automatically. But, you know, in middle school, they have all these 25, 30 big words. My kids could memorize them in maybe three or four minutes because they knew how to do this. And boy, does that save time then spend more time on things like physics and algebra. Which right, the more difficult subjects. understand a new concept. Yes, exactly. So my third one was mirror reading. And what that one is, is um, our kids, which I'm not a big fan of, are being forced to read out loud really fast uh, and sound every word out. So I always tell my parents, I said, how often as an adult do we have to read fast for 20 minutes out loud? Probably pretty much never because if we are speaking out loud while we're reading, we're reading narratively, slowly, a play or maybe a Bible study or up in front of the church or something. But it's a rare, rare incident. So, so I tell them, I said, you know, when you read silently, you read chunks of words. Your eyes are ahead of where you're reading. You do not sound every word out. And actually there's pretty good evidence to that, and I quoted that in the book. So what I have them do, to, and our really bright children, our 125, 140 IQ kids that learn phonetically, cannot convert because they've got that habit in their way. So mirror reading converts them and upside down reading converts them. So what I have them do is I want them to look at themselves in the mirror and I want them to read, but I want them to look at their words on their story and I don't want them to say them unless they're looking at themselves in the mirror and I want them to read them expressively. So instead of the cat ran after the dog, they have to look, and they look at the mirror, and they say, the cat ran after the dog. The dog did not want to go home. So they're getting sets of words, taking it, just like when you're in kindergarten, the teacher looks at a bunch of words, and then they look at all the kids. Right. So that is, is a really good way to help those kids convert, but then some really bright ones still want, and then you have to turn the books upside down. You have to have them read upside down in order to break that phonetic reading habit. I think these are such great tips. I feel like when I was coming through the book, it made so much sense, and there are so, all of the things that you talk about are so applicable, and I think that people are really going to gravitate towards this, and we'll share on our channels and on the notes for today's episode where to find your book but your website also has some resources can you just let everybody know what your website is and what those resources are sure so um my website is actually helping spread the message of this book and how optometry plays such a big role in learning and i started a facebook page vision aces uh in order to help uh, everyone know that optometry needs to be part of learning process. And so in the webpage, I have actually a 12-week course that takes you step-by-step step through the book. So individuals that have completed a vision therapy program or they might have been to an optometrist and they say, yep, you have the skills, they can go through the book then step-by-step, week-by-week, a 12-week program that they could sign up for and they can do it self-study or they can do it with me coaching them. 
or uh, I am in the process of certifying some optometrists that they can take them through that whole coaching program. And then uh, the other parts we're working on, I have a sports vision program that helps individuals uh, increase their athletic performance. We are working with some teams that are college-bound uh, athletes and professional-bound athletes that we're using some sports vision ideas for them. So that's on the website. And then there's also, uh, for optometrists specifically, how we uh, help improve our programs so we can offer our services to more people. And that's called uh, the, um, uh, the Vision Ace Academy. And so I've got a lot of different learning programs on there. There's some free PDFs people can download on how to get your study environment ready, which is in the beginning chapters of the book. Lighting, drinking water. It's amazing uh, how much good evidence-based information is there out there for uh, every piece that's important in our environment when we set up our study worlds. So, uh, you know, I'd love to... to to share the message, and I appreciate you guys helping us do that. And uh, we also are using the book, I just wanted to mention for optometrists that might hear this, is I'm now using the book for all my VT patients, and when they come in for their progress checks and they're still struggling a little bit in math, I'll say, okay, I actually give them a book now with my VT program, and I'll say, I want you to go to page 25, <laughs> you know those math activities, you know, this, this next six weeks, I'll, besides your home therapy, vision therapy stuff, I want you to start working on it because you have the skills ready. I want you to do some of these activities when you come back next month. Yeah, I'm going to ask you how they're going. So we'll start. When I use, I used to do it all verbally in a progress check. Now I have a resource I can point right to the page. It saves me so much time in the chair side, and for my progress check. And the parents love it because they have a tool now that they can take with them and and use in the home. I know that Dr. Zelnicki and myself are going to implement a lot of your tools into our vision therapy patients too, because there's just so many helpful tips. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Monte Calvo. Her book, again, is called Visual Secrets for School Success, and it has wonderful tips to try to improve all those skills we talked about today. Um, you can follow her at her website at brendamontecalvo.com. Follow Dr. Zelnicki and myself at Twin Forks Optometry on Instagram and Facebook, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>